Well, we are continuing our little three-part Advent series out of the Gospel of Luke. We started it last Sunday by looking at Gabriel, the angel, looking at his twin messages, both to Zechariah and to Mary. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, we looked briefly at the meeting that Mary had with her relative Elizabeth when both John the Baptist and Jesus were but uh, infants in the womb. And this morning, because it is the day after Christmas, we are going to be looking at uh, something that happened after Jesus was born uh, involving a man named Simeon. And so our text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along and keep them open as we go through this text. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one, uh, you can look in the seats in front of you, underneath, you'll find the Bible there, and it will be on pages 857 and 858 if you use that pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And when his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke tells us here that after Jesus was born, Mary did three things. Well, Mary and Joseph, she, they did three things. First, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem after a time of purification 
Secondly, they presented Jesus to the Lord according to the law of God. And third, they offered a sacrifice according to God's law. If you look at verse 22, it says, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I think a better way of translating that verse, and and some modern translations have it translated this way, is to say, when the time of purification had ended. Because as we'll see, as I'm going to read in a a moment, uh, a little passage from Leviticus, but what God's law stipulated was that after a woman uh, had given birth, either to a male child or to a a, a female child, there was this time of purification uh, that she had to go through. And uh, Leviticus stipulated that after a woman gave birth, if it was a male child, it would be a time of 40 days of purification before bringing the male child to the temple. So what we see going on here uh, that Luke is describing is that this is after that time of purification, obviously, now they're headed to the temple. Uh, So this is now uh, Mary and Joseph coming to Jerusalem with a 40-day-old Jesus. That's how old he is now as they're bringing him to the temple. And Luke says that they're doing this to present him to the Lord. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we find that the law of God stipulated, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So what God stipulated in the law, and this is what Mary and Joseph were following, is that the firstborn male, whether it was an an animal or whether it was a human child, it was to be dedicated wholly to the Lord. If it was a firstborn male animal, it was to be sacrificed to the Lord. If it was a firstborn male human, obviously not sacrificed, but dedicated to the Lord. And a sacrifice would be given for that dedication. And what Scripture tells us in Exodus is that this was done so that Israel would always remember how they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. If you remember, uh, those of you who know the story, they were rescued by God killing the firstborn male of the Egyptians, both man and animal. And that was eventually, and and after that final plague, what uh, released them from slavery. And so God is saying, from here on out, I want you to keep this tradition. When you have a firstborn male uh, son or animal, dedicate him wholly to the Lord so that you never forget how I rescued you from slavery. And Luke tells us here that they brought with them two turtle doves or two pigeons. He doesn't specify which one, but we know that's what they brought with them. Now we find that in Leviticus as well, in Leviticus chapter 12. Now this is where it talks about the days of her purifying. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, it says this, when the days of her, her purifying are completed whether it be for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now again, this is written when the tabernacle was there. Now it's the temple, which is why they're going to, to Jerusalem. She will present at the, tent, at the entrance of the tent of meeting 
a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering and he the priest shall offer it before the lord and make atonement for her so what we find is that mary and joseph are following this uh, law here they're heading now after this 40 days of purification to the temple in jerusalem and they're bringing with them two animals for a sacrifice for two different sacrifices one was to be a burnt offering the burnt offering was the most common offering in israel and the burnt offering was unique in that it was the offering where the entire animal was burnt up completely there was no part of the animal that was spared from the burnt offering and and what the burnt offering um signified what it was there for is for the person who was offering and giving the burnt offering would present to the priest this animal for sacrifice and the person would lay their hands on the animal symbolically transferring their own personal sin to this animal the animal had to be a male an unblemished spotless male lamb and this unblemished male lamb that was perfect and pure and spotless then took symbolically the sin of the offer on itself and then its pure spotless record would then be transferred to the person who was giving the sacrifice and then that animal that lamb would be burnt completely and that uh, that aroma would go up to god and god would accept that substitute in place of the sinner the sinner was acknowledging that he or she needed uh, a substitute to die in place of themselves recognizing that god is holy and that he cannot uh, accept sin in his presence one old testament scholar describes the burnt offering this way if we focus on what happens to the animal entire destruction is the most obvious meaning the animal represents the worshiper so we may infer that entire destruction of the worshiper is signified but the worshiper is not destroyed but preserved because of the substitutionary value of the animal the worshiper can remain alive and we might say that they can enjoy new life hence what happens to them does suggest entire dedication to god but this entire dedication is accomplished by an entire destruction of the substitute that's the burnt offering now there was a second animal that was brought and that was for what is called the sin offering the sin offering was different in that the sin offering was not completely burned up the sin offering uh, was killed the animal was killed and the animal's blood was sprinkled on on the altar and on on the different uh, uh pieces of furniture that were in the temple the sin offering was not so much focused on the sin of the person bringing the animal their own personal sin and providing a substitute for them the sin offering was there to cleanse the surroundings from the person's sin the sin offering focused not so much on the personal sin of of that person but on the pollution caused by that sinner the sin offering said you are not the only one that is impacted by your sin 
that your sin impacts everyone. And your sin ripples out and causes hurt and destruction and everything for the people around you. And so the sin offering was designed to purify and to cleanse your surroundings. So the lamb was for the burnt offering and the turtle dove or the pigeon was for the sin offering. However, what we see here is that Mary and Joseph are bringing two turtle doves or two pigeons. They weren't bringing a lamb and a turtle dove. And that's because God gave allowance in his law, you find it in Leviticus, that if a person could not afford a lamb, then that person could substitute another turtle dove or another pigeon for the lamb. God set aside uh, or set this up as a stipulation so that those who were of lesser means, the poor, could also come and present an offering, which tells us, interestingly, that Jesus was not born into a wealthy family. Jesus was born into a family that had to provide the, the second turtle dove. It also tells us, as, uh, as some scholars pointed out, and I didn't even think about this, but it tells us that Mary and Joseph have not yet presumably been met by the Magi, because the Magi presented to them gifts of gold which meant that if they had received that, they would have had the means to go and purchase the lamb to then bring with them for this sacrifice. So, so the Magi are going to come later, after, 40, after Jesus is 40 days old. We don't know exactly when. Now, verses 24 and 25 say this. They introduce us to a man named Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This man, Simeon, appears that he is an old man now, and that he has been looking for the consolation of Israel. That word just simply means uh, that there is something and someone coming who will console the nation of Israel, who will bring encouragement to the nation of Israel. And that's what we find in the Old Testament. God had promised that a Messiah was coming. And God had furthermore promised that when the Messiah comes, he would be bringing with him joy, that he would be bringing with him uh, many things that will bring encouragement and consolation to a nation that found itself uh, mired in sin and destruction and and some of these uh, Israelites that received these prophecies uh, about this coming Messiah as you know had been uh, seen the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and had been exiled and and they had seen their people wiped out and so some of them had put their hope in this coming Messiah and Simeon was one of them we find in Isaiah chapter 25, for instance, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. 
that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As I mentioned last Sunday, at this particular time in Israel's history, the the days were especially dark. Uh, The people of Israel were being ruled by King Herod, who was a a puppet king, and, and he was in many ways ruthless and heartless. And then above him, you had the Caesars of Rome, Uh, who could, uh, at a whim, end a person's life, and Rome ruled with an iron fist. And and these are the people that the people of Israel lived under, in subjection to. I wonder how many people during that time lost hope. I wonder how many people looked around at their surroundings, looked at the situation they were in, and thought, it will never get better than this. And yet, Scripture tells us that this man, Simeon, was not one of them. That as old as he was, as many bits of hardship as he had seen, as many things, of things that he had seen Rome or Herod do that were disgusting and despicable, as many things that he had seen that, that cast a shadow over that land, Scripture says that he was waiting, that he was actively waiting and zeroing in on this promise that God had given him. I picture him daily, daily, surrounded by misery, surrounded by hardship, pulling this promise out and opening it up and and looking at it and staring at it and knowing that he would not die until God had sent his Redeemer to Israel to save God's people. Christian, I ask you this morning, are you waiting for the consolation of the world? We sung this morning earlier about the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. How do you get along each week? Are are, you know, we're we're surrounded by darkness. It's in some ways, you know, things never change. Uh, you, You just look throughout history. When has there ever been a time in world history since Christ has left and ascended back to heaven when the world has not had hardship? and darkness, and trial, and war, and famine, and everything else that goes on in a sinful world. And yet I, I know in my own heart, and I know Christians that I talk to, so often we get so overwhelmed by the bad news of our society. And I wonder, how often do you pull out and look at it? Look at the promises that we have from God. The sure promise that our Lord is one day going to return. I don't know when that will happen. But we know the end of the story. We don't have to be overwhelmed by what goes on in a sinful world. We know that Christ has already conquered. And that one day he will return to rid this world of sin and death. And that he will reign over a new heavens and a new earth. That's the end of the story. The end of the story is that the church wins. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you you soak in those promises, Christian? I encourage you, I'll be sending out this week a yearly Bible reading plan. I send it out every year and you can pick which one you want to use, but I would encourage you to go through there and pick one this year. Find yourself every day in God's word. I promise you, you don't have to Find a time where you're especially spiritual. Just start reading it. And I promise you, as you delve into God's word each day, that you will start to feel a hope and a joy inside.
as you focus on the promises that are found. And that's what we have in Simeon. We have a man that was not overwhelmed by the trials of his life. He was looking actively for the consolation of Israel. And then finally it happened. Scripture says that God, Jesus, God the Son, incarnate, the temple of God par excellence was brought to the temple was brought to the structure that pointed forward to him. And after all those years of patiently waiting and looking at for the consolation of Israel, Simeon finally saw him. With his own eyes, he saw the one that he had been waiting for. And Luke says that he took him up into his arms and blessed God. Imagine that. This old man, Simeon, took into his arms and held the one who had created him. How amazing is that? When we think of the, the level to which our Lord Jesus stooped. And Simeon said, now, Father, now, the emphasis is on there, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And when he speaks to God here, when he says, Lord, he doesn't use the, the typical Greek word that we see all over for the Lord God, kurios. He uses actually an interesting word. He uses the word despotes, from which we get our English word despot. Simeon speaks to the Lord, and we, we have negative connotations when we talk about despots. But all the, all the Greek word means is, is someone who has ultimate power and authority. And Simeon is speaking to God as someone who has ultimate power and authority over his life. I wonder where Simeon would have that immediate thought of God, except that every day he was soaking in God's promises. And he knew that God held the future and held him in his sovereign hands. And Simeon not only refers to God as a desperate, as someone who has complete power and authority over him and all of, over all of human history, but he refers to himself as this despot's bondservant, as this despot's slave. He's saying, Lord, now you have kept me alive by your sovereign grace until this moment. And now that I've seen him, you can take me whenever you want because your promises have been fulfilled in my life. He says, now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Just because Simeon was not overwhelmed by the trials of this world doesn't mean he was at complete peace. He struggled like anyone, but when he saw, when, when the promises became sight, he said, now I can depart in peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. There is no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simeon can die in peace because death is no longer feared at all. He knows that this Savior will take care of his sin. Jesus is, friends, the key to dying in peace. As a pastor, I have many tasks each week and, and many roles that I fulfill, and uh, one is a preacher, obviously, one is a teacher, I, I fulfill the role of counselor, and, and all of these things, but if you, if you sum them all up, 
there's really, I think, ultimately one role that a pastor has, and that is that he is to prepare people to die. That's what my role is. We are not prepared to die and meet God until we have first met the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't turn Jesus away and still have God. You can't turn Jesus away and still have peace with God. Jesus has said that over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. And I worked with a uh, Jewish coworker of mine when I worked for uh, a newspaper in Maryland. And uh, I remember one day he just came out with it and he said, Max, I am scared to death of death. And I said, well, Mark, you know why I think you're afraid? We had already had many conversations. I said, you know why I think you're afraid to die? He said, why? I said, I think it's because you believe that the God of the Old Testament is real. You've told me that. You believe that he is holy. You believe that he will not accept sin into his presence and you don't have a sacrifice You don't have a temple any longer. What do you do with your sin and your guilt? And he said, well, my rabbi told me I don't need a temple anymore. And I said, where do you get that out of scripture? You see, I said, Mark, I don't fear death, not because I'm any better than you. I don't fear death because I have a sacrifice for my sin, and his name is Jesus. And Mark was amazed that he had ever met anyone who didn't fear death. Because everyone else in his life feared death, except for me. I don't know whatever happened with him, but but you see, Simeon says here that God's salvation is for the Jew, but not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. He's already proclaiming that salvation eventually is going to go. He says, Jesus, this baby is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of God's nation Israel. Notice here, it's interesting, he puts Gentiles first. He's echoing the Old Testament in Isaiah 49. It says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And Jesus, when he spoke in John chapter 8, as he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And when Mary and Joseph heard these things from Simeon, Luke tells us that they marveled. And Simeon, verses 33 and 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Scripture says here that after Simeon praises and says these marvelous things about Jesus, he specifically turns to Mary. And he looks at her in particular. And what he says here is really important. Because if we just think through Luke's gospel so far, If we just think through the things that that I've preached on and and the things that, that we hear read all throughout the Christmas season, what we see is that thus far, everything that has been said about Jesus and his birth has been entirely positive, has been entirely joyful. It's been a message of joy and of hope 
and of praise to God. The shepherds are turning, glorifying God. The, the angels showing up, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill to men. Just go back and look at all the prophecies about Jesus so far. Gabriel's. Look at Elizabeth's. Look at Mary's Magnificat. Zechariah's. The angels, the shepherds, they've all been positive. But here, in what Simeon says, as he holds Jesus, here for the first time, darkness enters the picture. See, Simeon, it's like he looks at Mary intently and he says, listen closely. This one, this little baby, is destined. He is appointed by God for the fall of many. For the rising up of many. He is destined, he is appointed by God to be a sign that will be opposed. What we find here for the first time in Luke's gospel is that Jesus, though he is God's way of salvation, is not going to be universally loved. That there are going to be many who are going to hear the message from Jesus and reject him. There are going to be many who are going to hear him and in unbelief fall. It will be their downfall. There will be people, on the other hand, who will accept him by faith and, and be risen up. And this too was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. He will become a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jer Jerusalem. Many will stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And what did Jesus say when he came onto the scene. He said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not may see and those who see may become blind. Jesus said, as he taught, do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You know, I just listening to Alex this morning and talking about how hard the spiritual ground is there at, at GW. It's like taking a jackhammer to, to cement. Well, we know from Paul's letters that the gospel is an offense. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called like perhaps Kenzo. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For we, Christian, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life. See, what Simeon's message here says is that Jesus exposes people's hearts toward God. If you want to know what someone thinks about God, find out what they think about Jesus. That'll tell you all you need to know. Jesus is the only pure and perfect revelation that we have from God apart from his word. And how do people treat him? I mean, some people treat him as 
someone they hate. Some treat him as someone who's inconsequential to their lives. Some treat him as a good man, but certainly not God, certainly not someone worth falling down and, and worshiping. Well, however they think of Jesus is what they think of God. And Christians alone are those who worship the true God because they alone are the ones who bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. You see, Jesus is the litmus test of your relationship with God. I was in the gym a couple of days ago, and, uh, and I, I ran into a guy that, that I, I run into on occasion there, and uh, he knows I'm a pastor. In fact, he corrects his language when he's talking to me. He always apologizes for I try to tell him it's, it's, not, it's not me you have to be worried about. Uh, but, but, you know, he, he just flat said to me, you know, hey, w- when, I, when I meet God one day, uh, and, 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 you know, he tells me whether I'm going up or going down, you know, I don't know where, where it's going to be, but I've got some questions I'm going to ask him, you know, and I was wondering what those questions were going to be, and he said, you know, I'm going to ask him, like, why'd you put rats on the earth? You know, like, what, what do rats accomplish? And then he said, I'm also going to ask him, like, who shot JFK, you know, and all these things. And I thought, what? Those are pretty inconsequential to whether you're going up or down, you know? It's like, so, so I said, well, hey, listen, he just told me he had nothing going on for Christmas, that he doesn't have family or he's not close to him. He said, Christmas is just another day for me. And I said, well, listen, since that's the case, why don't you come to our Christmas Eve service? It's at 6 o'clock. I told him where it is. I said, and come on Sunday uh, because I think that you could have your questions, the big questions of whether you're going up or down, answered. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, I'm not into that. I'm not into religion. I'm, uh, thank you, but that's not really my thing. And he walked away. He See, when you walk away from Jesus, you walk away from salvation. Interestingly, the first person to embrace Jesus by faith after Simeon says these things is this old woman who comes on the scene. In verses 36 to 38, uh, this woman, this prophetess named Anna, she had been a widow for 77 years. When when you look at, uh, you know, that she's 84 years old, I mean, that's that's old today, but that was ancient then. And here she is. Uh, she's coming forward after herself uh, being daily in prayer and in fasting and in God's word and looking forward to the Messiah as well. One thing that's interesting to note is, is notice how almost all of the people so far in this story, in Luke's account, have been really aged, have been old. I mean, that's not normally the case, but we find Zechariah and Elizabeth and now Simeon and Anna, all of these old people making these proclamations, these glorious proclamations about Jesus, the Messiah. One of the things that you know about ancient cultures like this is that age was not, old age was not looked down upon, but it was honored. And to have someone who was old make a proclamation meant that their witness was credible. And so here we have all of these old people making all of these wondrous claims about the Lord Jesus. And it amazes me that she spent 
all of those years as a widow in God's house, worshiping and praying and fasting. And I think it's no coincidence that she and Simeon both were looking for this. And both of them were overjoyed when they saw the Lord's Messiah come. Because every day they were rehearsing these truths. Every day they were rehearsing the promises of God. And brothers and sisters, that's what we do when we enter the Lord's house on the Lord's day. This time that we have to hear from God's word, to sing to him, to pray to him, to hear scripture read, to partake of the Lord's supper, all of these are rehearsals for that day when the Lord returns. Sunday, the Lord's day, ought to be the highlight of your week. That's the week where you can enter into God's house and do things that you don't do the rest of the week that point forward to that great day and point back to the great day of salvation that Jesus did for us. And that's what you find here with Simeon and Anna. And then, almost as an aside, Simeon prophesies one more thing specifically pointed at Mary. He looks at Mary intently and he says, you see, Mary, your very soul is going to be pierced by a sword. The word that he uses here, translated sword, is not a a little dagger. It's a a large, broad sword, a two-edged sword. And Simeon is using it to express that something is going to happen that is going to cause her great sorrow pertaining to her son. You know, it's interesting when you think about uh, that the very next thing that Luke tells us uh, that happens with Mary and Joseph and Jesus as their son is that he brings them hardship, that uh, he skips over 12 years of life, 11 years of life. And Jesus, at age 12, sends his parents into a fit of worry That when they leave Jerusalem and they're heading back with the caravan, they look around, they don't find uh, their 12-year-old son, and they have to go back and search all over the city for him and finally find him in the temple talking to all the scholars. And he said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I have to be in my father's house? So already, I mean, here her son, her son from birth, her son from the time he was able to speak or act or do anything Her firstborn was the most wonderful son that anyone could ever have. He was the only son, the only child that she would ever have who would love God perfectly every second of his life and love and honor his mother perfectly every second of his life. You can imagine what that would have been like. I I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of glad that Scripture didn't even try to describe it. I mean, for those of you who are parents or even think of yourself as a child, was there, is there even one day that you go through where you honor and love God and your parents perfectly? And yet he, he never failed. Her, her beloved son, who nevertheless, though loving her and serving her and honoring her perfectly, yet loved his father perfectly and had to be about his father's business. Parenting him came with costs. And you see, her whole life, she carried with her the knowledge that he was destined for greatness. She had heard it from all of these prophecies that he was 
the Son of God, that he was the Son of the Most High, that he was named Jesus because he was Yahweh saves. And she knew that, all of these things, and her whole life she carried that with her. And for 30 years, she saw him develop into a man of God, completely focused on him. And when his three-year ministry started, he gathered a band of disciples and he taught in their hometown as one who had authority. And as more and more people began to follow him and, and as he gave sermons and as he healed the people who no one else could heal and as he cast out demons as only the Son of God could, you can imagine what she thought of her son. That he was indeed the, the Savior, this Messiah that God had promised. And then one day it happened. Her son, this beloved son that, that she held in her arms that day in the temple was stripped in front of her. He was stripped naked. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was beaten so badly that Scripture tells us he didn't even resemble a man, much less the son that she loved. And he was hung on a cross in agony in front of her. And you can imagine all of the cuts and scrapes and bruises that she tried to mend as he was a little boy and now unable to do anything to stop the bleeding of the pain. And of course, by this time, Joseph has died and Jesus had become her primary caregiver. And so even in his agony, he loved her to the very end. And he handed over her care in one final act of love to his beloved disciple John to care for his widowed mother. That day, that day was the day that his side was pierced with a spear, but that her soul was pierced with a sword. And that day, That day all those years ago when he was only 40 days old, that day in the temple, what she didn't realize that day, I don't think she could have realized it, as she carried with her her son and these two turtle doves for the sacrifice, was that she also carried with her a lamb. She carried with her a lamb that cost her nothing. She carried with her not the symbol of the Lamb of God, but she carried with her the Lamb of God, the spotless one. And as she carried that lamb, that spotless, perfect lamb without blemish, he, although she didn't know it at the time, would be for her the perfect burnt offering, completely demolished by the Father. He would be for her the perfect sin offering given for her. And that's what we remember when we come to the Lord's Supper. We remember what our Lord did for us.